Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The State Department sends foreign service officers all over the world. Both the officers and the families they bring with them often contribute to the mission through off-the-clock volunteer efforts. As it does annually, the State Department recently honored the people doing this kind of work. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman reports. For Rob and Kimberly Gudenkoff, a big change in their overseas community started with a simple act, taking in a stray dog. Here's Kimberly Gudenkoff. We rehabilitated him and then realized we couldn't keep him and there was nowhere for him to go. So we were able to find a very small NGO that operated an animal shelter in Ulaanbaatar. And we went to drop him off there and were kind of heartbroken by the conditions of the shelter and decided that we wanted to do everything we could to help them and to help the animals at that shelter. Rob Gudenkoff is a special agent with the Diplomatic Security Service. And Kimberly, before life in the Foreign Service, was a veterinarian with a master's degree in public health. They're both stationed in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. It's the coldest capital city in the world. Temperatures can plummet to negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit in the winter. Not having enough or adequate shelter space has life or death consequences for stray animals in the city. So the animals that don't make it to the shelter do face basically very harsh conditions where they freeze to death in the winters uh, or they're shot by contracted hunters. That's how they controlled the stray populations there. So we kind of made it our mission, started raising funds, started gathering volunteers, started working at the shelter and improving the infrastructure there. Before long, the Gudenkoffs created a network of more than 80 volunteers. They've teamed up with international organizations to find permanent homes for dogs in the U.S. and Canada. So far, they've raised more than $40,000 for veterinary care and infrastructure improvements at local animal shelters. This work is also leading to policy change. Mongolia earlier this month passed its first animal rights law. Kimberly Gudenkoff says that's something she and her husband spoke to high-ranking officials about. It's not just the animals at the shelter that we ultimately want to help. It's all of the animals in Mongolia. We are very much trying to encourage change of just culturally how stray animals are viewed there, really encouraging spay and neuter programs. It's because of this work that the Gudenkoffs received one of this year's Secretary of State Awards for Outstanding Volunteerism Abroad. Former Secretary of State James Baker and his wife Susan helped create the SOSA Awards 33 years ago. They honor Foreign Service professionals and their families for acts of public service that go above and beyond their official duties. The State Department held an official ceremony last month at its headquarters to honor this year's award recipients. Secretary of State Antony Blinken told the award winners in a video message that they made extraordinary contributions to the communities in which they serve. They, along with so many of our colleagues across the department, volunteer not for recognition, but out of a sense of duty to do everything in their power to improve the lives of their neighbors in the communities in which they're serving. The State Department is also recognizing another husband and wife team. Ed O'Brien is a Foreign Service officer. His wife, Alicia Krupenikava, is a professional associate for public diplomacy. They're both based in Ashbagat, Turkmenistan. Together, they won a SOSA award for their work through a U.S.-based nonprofit called Technovation Girls. 
It's all about teaching STEM skills to girls age 8 to 18. Here's O'Brien explaining how the program works. It's about a six-month project where they do a curriculum in technology and entrepreneurship. They identify a problem in their community. They research it. They try to find a, a tech solution, usually a mobile app, or, uh, or now they use AI. And then they also study uh, entrepreneurship to make it sustainable. So they actually write a business plan. So after six months, they create this project. They code a real app, and then they have a pitch that they give in front of an audience of judges. It's worldwide. So certain ones that do really well get to advance to a semifinal round that's all done online. And then the finalists, which we hope someday we'll get some out of Turkmenistan, go to California where uh, there's a final event. This year's Sosa Award winners included some familiar faces. Krupenikava won a Sosa Award back in 2017 for creating a chapter of the same program in Ukraine. She couldn't travel to be at the award ceremony, but O'Brien says they're both glad to be recognized for their ongoing work. We moved there and uh, a woman had planned to start it and she wasn't able to. And my wife, just being a good person, said, I'll, I'll try. And next thing you know, we had a couple hundred girls all across Ukraine learning technology and entrepreneurship skills. And so we've been doing this program everywhere we've been. This is our third continent that we've supported it on. Jerry Case is an eligible family member traveling with his wife who works in the Foreign Service. They're currently stationed in Turkmenistan, but Case won a SOSA award for his work at their last post in Dublin, Ireland. There, he created a project to refurbish more than 2,000 bicycles for Ukrainian refugees. Case is an avid biker himself and a retired National Park Service ranger. He says Ukrainians fleeing war in their home country arrived in Ireland with few options for getting around. And if they were fortunate enough to have a suitcase of clothes, that was a, a big deal. Kids need to go to school, and, and mom needs to find some work. And without a, a way to do that, other than public transportation, we provided them a, a great benefit in, in giving them a free bicycle. George Cornick is an EFM now stationed in Nairobi, Kenya. He's being recognized for his work in Kampala, Uganda. He's being recognized for mentoring youth at a refugee shelter. There, he taught teens life skills and job interview techniques. He also formed a step dancing group, which he says was a great way to get connected with the youth on the ground. By teaching them these steps, that's the plug to get them in to teach them more life skills. They were able to do very well, so I'm really proud of all of them. Mandy Brown is an EFM in Doha, Qatar. There, she's been working to support Afghan refugees. Brown is part of a group of volunteers called the Doha Do-Gooders. If that group sounds familiar, it's because another one of its members, Deborah Stock, received a SOSA award last year. As part of this group, Brown supports the local American school and the Cutter Little League, which gets local youth into baseball and softball. Foreign service life is all about travel and moving posts every two to three years. But Brown says this volunteer work is a great way to feel a part of the community. And I wanted to as well find a purpose and make a difference and feeling like being part of the community and volunteers that come together, it's just becomes family and it's a great way to get to know people, be part of the community and make a difference hopefully in someone's life. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. 
what's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. 
and even your title, Chief People Officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things 
through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.